Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I am an avid family historian who has been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with nearly 20,000 people recorded in my trees. Episode 18, Theo's Duty. This is part two of the episode on Theo. And again, we have the very knowledgeable Ray Blair as my guest to uncover the information on the rest of the adventures that Theo got up to in his life. Please note there are some distressing details in this episode, so please proceed with caution. If you haven't already listened to the first part, please stop now and go back and listen to the first episode so this part makes sense to you. In our last episode, we left Theo and his family in Yorkton, the second settlement place selected in northern Van Diemen's land. The family were living in a dwelling that had been constructed from local materials and Theo just received a promotion to corporal. So whilst it was quite an upheaval for Anne and the family to sell up their farm and their land and sell to Van Diemen's land, they were at least all together again. They were part of a community of 186 people, including 17 children. But things take a personal turn for Theo. On Christmas Day 1805, during an altercation, Theo was wounded by being stabbed by a private John Franks. Franks was arrested and records show that he was discharged at Yorkton for stabbing Corporal Theophilus Futrell. And whilst I've seen records to support this, and it is a long-standing family story, I came across the publication Tasmanian Ancestry, which is published by the Tasmanian Family History Society, which listed a private Bates being stabbed by J. Franks on Christmas Day. So who knows which record is correct, but if it actually was Theo who was stabbed, it would have kept him off duty for a while, but at least it wasn't fatal. By the new year in 1806, despite all predictions, it was clear the livestock was not thriving in Yorkton. This would have been unsettling news for all. After an expedition, Lieutenant Governor Patterson made the decision to drive them south down to where the Tamar and North Esk rivers intersected. Theo and Joseph joined half of the regiment and some convicts to drive the 200 head of cattle to their new location. But before he left, Anne delivered another baby girl called Elizabeth who survived. Theo and Joseph headed off to the new location, a place they initially called Patasonia before it was renamed to Launceston. And there would have been a ferry service between Georgetown, Yorkton and Launceston. Theo and Joseph would have been able to make regular trips back to Yorkton to visit Anne and the family over the three months it took to build appropriate accommodation for the family in Launceston. But on 16 June, disaster struck the settlements in northern Van Diemen's land when the supply ship Venus was stolen by her crew when the captain went ashore. They'd yet had the opportunity to unload the food and other supplies when the Venus sailed away. It created significant hardship as the communities of Georgetown, Yorkton and Launceston went on strict food rations. But worst of all, they had no idea when a replacement ship would be sent. Around this time, American whaling ships discovered that the Derwent River in the southern part of Van Diemen's Land near Hobart was a good spot for southern right whales. And a whaling station known as Triwork Point was established in 1804. Not only did the whale oil industry boom at this time, but the the trade in seal skins was also lucrative. This brought whaling ships to the north of the island, which is how I expect word reached Launceston that a new governor, Governor Bly, arrived in Sydney Cove to replace Governor King. 
With this news, Lieutenant Governor Patterson took his family back to Sydney. He stayed away from Launceston for eight months. When he finally returned in April 1807 with food and supplies, he found the community in Launceston emaciated and in rags. They had not had any supplies since the Venus was stolen 10 months ago, at a time when they were desperate even then. It's difficult to imagine how horrific it would have been for Thea, his family and the other inhabitants to have had so little food and other basic provisions and absolutely no way to escape their predicament. At least with Patterson's arrival, food rationing returned to full levels, at least for the time being. Two years later, in February 1808, with crop production livestock at suboptimal levels, Patterson put the northern Van Diemen's Land communities back on short rations, and by April they were starving again. Whaling ships and the strict control over fishing and killing of kangaroos staved off the worst of the hunger, but the communities were struggling. At this time, news reached them of the military coup in Sydney against Governor Bly, and it was sensational news that the military was now formally in charge of the colony. The community would have hoped it was good news for them, but a breakdown in the leadership order when their own circumstances were so tenuous would have been unsettling. And this might explain Theo's problem of losing his rank of corporal being demoted back to private. However, by the end of the year, he was re-promoted back to corporal. Despite our research, we haven't found a reason for the changes in his rank. Theo and his family don't know it yet, but the military coup will cause a ripple of events that will have devastating consequences for them in the future. So this military coup, famously known as the Rum Rebellion, was a real turning point in Australia's history. The English government had tried different things to get the colony working under good civil governments. So what did they try next? Well, by December 1809, so a year after the coup, Governor Lachlan Macquarie came out to replace Bly and the coup ringleaders, which was Johnson and MacArthur, hightailed it back to England to plead their case. The English government had had enough of this unruly colony and in response, they equipped the new governor with his own army. Macquarie did what no other governor had done before him. He arrived not only as a civic leader, but also as a military leader of the 73rd Regiment. This regiment was to replace the out of control New South Wales Corps, which by this time had been renamed the 102nd Regiment of Foot. For members of the 102nd Regiment like Theo and Joseph, they were now given a choice, return to England with the 102nd or transfer across to Macquarie's 73rd or discharge from the military. At this stage, Theo is 37 and Joseph 16. In weighing up their options, they'd be considering that they had steady employment with the military, so a discharge was perhaps not an option. Besides, in Van Diemen's land, they had opportunity that England couldn't match despite the uncertainty with food and supplies, and neither Theo nor Anne had family alive in England. They decided to stay in the military and in Van Diemen's land, and Theo and Joseph transferred to the 73rd. And one can only assume that because Joseph was young at the time, it would have been a contributing factor for Theo to keep him away from active fighting that the 102nd would be facing. With the arrival of Macquarie came the implementation of new policies. By 1812, four years after the military coup that deposed Governor Bly, bushrangers were becoming a big problem in Van Diemen's land, and it was fueled by kangaroo meat. Once the Tasmanian governor issued licenses to kill kangaroos, mostly to settler farmers, 
and the government stores were a ready source of income buying the room meat, the local mobs of kangaroos were quickly wiped out. That meant the license holders had to travel deeper into the bush. They had to work harder for their money. It was against the law to equip convict staff with guns, but some settler license holders thought to use convict labour to kill the kangaroos on their behalf, and to do that, they had to give them guns. The smart convicts returned with the killed kangaroos, and rather than hand them over, as the settlers expected, the convicts made the settlers buy the meat from them. It's difficult to argue when you have your own gun pointed in your face. Bushrangers became a problem the government couldn't ignore. Macquarie was forced to issue an instruction that the government stores would no longer buy kangaroo meat as it was fueling the illicit bush trade. But of course, once the government store closed to kangaroo meat, the outlaws turned their attention to rustling sheep and reports flooded in of livestock being stolen and farmers threatened by armed robbers. In the past, starvation usually drove absconders to give themselves up, but now armed with guns, they were more self-sufficient and more dangerous. So what was happening with Theo and Anne and their family at this time with bushrangers in their surrounds? Well, life for Theo and Anne was a matter of keeping food on the table and expanding their family number by adding another two children, Samuel in 1809 and James in 1812. So they now had a total of eight children. The eldest girls, Sarah and Hannah, who were now 20 and 17, worked as domestic servants and lived away. Joseph likely stayed at the military barracks and that left at home the other children aged from 11 years and under who were Hobbs, Mary, Elizabeth, Samuel and James. At this time, Theo and Joseph were given a new assignment to supervise work on the road gangs building the road between Launceston and Hobart. In the course of their duty, they captured a bushranger and their daring escapade reached the ears of Lieutenant Governor Davy in Hobart. He issued them both with a bonus, 10 pounds for Theo, and five pounds for Joseph, which would have been a very handsome reward given Theo's normal pay was 10 pence and Joseph seven pence per day. Their success gave Governor Davy an idea and he instructed Theo and Joseph to work exclusively on the control of bushrangers. By 1814, Macora's 73rd Regiment had stayed longer than their original three-year term and the 46th Regiment had arrived to replace them. Macquarie instructed that all 73rd Regiment members must leave Van Diemen's land and head to Ceylon to support other British troops fighting the rebels in the Candian War. This put Lieutenant Governor Davy in a spin as he knew the soldiers of the 46th wouldn't know anything about the bush and controlling bushrangers. Fearing for what might happen, he instructed Theo and Joseph to stay behind against Macquarie's orders. When the ship sailed away from Van Diemen's land with the last of the members of the 73rd, Theo and Joseph were formally listed as deserters, but their salary continued to be paid. Theo and Joseph, now an anomaly, remained members of the 73rd, but reported to the commander of the 46th. Part of their duties now was to train the 46th to help control bushrangers. The Van Diemen's Lane bushrangers from this time are notorious and perhaps none more so than Michael Howe. Can you tell us about Theo's encounter with Michael Howe? Yes, on the 15th of August, 1814, Theo and Joseph and a private William Mary of the 46th Regiment were tasked with taking three prisoners called Thomas Howard, William Harrison Craig and William Steele from Launceston to Hobart to stand trial for bushranging. 
It was a distance of just over 200 kilometres and they would be walking. It was midwinter in Van Diemen's land, so you can imagine the freezing conditions. Early in their trek, they encountered five men in the middle of the track who, upon seeing Theo and his group, made a run for it. Theo and Joseph gave chase and they ended up catching two of them. Theo recognised one from the 73rd, a deserter called McAllister, and the other one was called Robinson. Theo's task was made more difficult with these extra prisoners because he only had supplies for the soldiers and the original three prisoners, but now had another two mouths to feed and extra bodies to guard. With the two new prisoners tied to the original three, the group continued onwards and near Blackman's River at a place called the Tin Dish Holes, which is about a quarter of the way to Hobart, they stopped by a campfire where two convicts were warming themselves. Theo went on alert when he noticed they both had guns. These convicts said they worked for Master Lord. Theo recognised the name because Edward Lord was one of the island's largest landowners and a successful farmer. Theo noticed the letter L carved into the wooden stock of one of the guns, which proved that Edward Lord was arming his assigned convicts against the law. As Theo was in no position to take possession of another two convicts, he decided to continue without them. Theo and his group of eight walked for another four hours and reached York Plains. There they found another campfire and tents and four stockmen sitting around. A sizable herd of cattle grazed nearby. A man identified himself as Master Lord's overseer and commented that Theo had his hands full. The overseer offered that he could leave the herd driving to his men and he could help Theo with getting the prisoners to Hobart. Theo was suspicious and declined. The overseer then said his men would do some hunting that day, so at least let him give them fresh meat. He asked Theo where was he planning on staying. Theo's food supplies were dwindling and he felt he had no option but to tell him where they planned to rest, which was at the Ovens Caves near Jericho. The overseer said he knew where that was. Theo and his group left the campsite and reached the oven's caves, but Theo was on high alert. They put the five prisoners deep into the cave, built a fire at the entrance, and the soldiers settled around it, taking shifts to keep watch. Their plan didn't work. They're woken with musket barrels pressed cold against their temples. Lay still, you buggers, or we'll blow you to pieces, one of the intruders said. From family stories, it's possible that Joseph resisted and was beaten during this encounter. The leader of the intruders had a Yorkshire accent and was well dressed in a long navy overcoat, remarkable in its quality with pewter buttons, and he wore it over an animal skin jacket, the tan colour matching his hat. Theo recognised him as the notorious bushranger Michael Howe. A few of the other intruders Theo recognised as bolters and deserters, James Geary, a deserter from the 73rd, same as McAllister, and Eli Begent and John Mills. Bushrangers freed prisoners from the cave and Michael Howe offered them all to join him. All but William Harrison Craig agreed, but William Craig asked whether he could just travel with them for a while. The bushrangers took the soldiers' guns and ammunition and left them tied up. Eventually, Theo, Joseph and William freed themselves and set off towards Hobart, but were surprised when William Craig met up with them. He had Theo's gun, which he returned to him, and Theo agreed for William Craig to travel with them to Hobart. Eleven days later in Hobart, Theo gave a deposition of the encounter to a bench of magistrates. And just a quick word on William Craig. For assisting the soldiers, he was pardoned his bush ranging charge and he continued his convict time in Hobart. 
William Harrison Craig was the son of a renowned court painter and he and his wife began stealing when her father died and they ran into financial difficulty. He was a gentle, educated man who arrived in Sydney in 1812 and had arrived in Van Diemen's Land the year of his encounter with Theo in 1814. For assisting Theo, he was rewarded with art supplies and he did many paintings and sketches of the area and some of which are in the State Library of New South Wales. And a final word on Michael Howe. In 1818, so four years after his incident with Theo, Thomas Wells, the governor's secretary, wrote a pamphlet entitled Michael Howe, the last and worst of the bushrangers, detailing the rise and fall of the most notorious criminal in Van Diemen's Land. From 1813, when Michael Howe, the convict, absconded, he had led two different gangs that terrorised the settlers from Hobart through to Launceston, resulting in murders, assaults and robberies. His evasion for capture was a source of frustration for authorities. In October 1818, an acquaintance of Howe's, a man named Warburton, devised a scheme to capture Howe with Edward Lord's stockkeeper, convict Thomas Worrell, and Private William Pugh of the 48th Regiment. Warburton lured Howe to a hut on the Shannon River with the promise of ammunition. Worrell and Pugh were lying in wait in the hut and were alerted to Howe's approach by Warburton. Shots were fired, but none found their mark. Howe was not able to reload his pistol, so ran for it with Worrell and Pugh in pursuit. When Howe was caught, Worrell and Pugh clubbed him to death. Just to quote a passage in the pamphlet written by the governor's secretary, Michael Howe wore at the time of his death a dress made of kangaroo skins, had an extraordinary long beard and presented altogether a terrific appearance. His face, perhaps in some degree from associating with it the recollection of his crimes, exhibited strong marks of a murderer. During his long career of guilt, he was never known to perform one humane act. His body was interred on the spot where he fell. His head was brought to Hobart Town and suffered to be seen by the people to whom the end of this monster afforded an inconceivable degree of satisfaction. Theo, Joseph, and William Mary were lucky to get away with their lives. Back in 1814, after Theo's encounter with Howe, when he and Joseph eventually returned to Launceston, they found Anne had been going through an ordeal of her own. In their absence, she delivered another baby, a boy they named Thomas. I can't imagine the horror of seeing Michael Howe's head on display like that in Hobart. I am impressed, however, with Anne's fortitude but the situation is changing around her and the family once more, it will really test her resilience. Can you tell us what happens next? In the years since the 46th Regiment arrived to replace the 73rd Regiment, which left for Salon, the political landscape was changing. The 48th Regiment arrived in 1817 to replace the 46th, which were being sent to the Indian subcontinent. Lieutenant Governor Davey had been replaced with Lieutenant Governor Sorrell, and Sorrell wasn't as keen to keep Theo and Joseph's services. It was time for Theo and Joseph to make a decision, either take a discharge or rejoin the 73rd fighting in Salon. Theo was 46 years old at the time, so certainly an age for discharge from the military. He and Anne would have had money from the sale of land in Sydney, and in fact, one newspaper article referred to the future family as well-to-do. But if Joseph at age 24 was keen to go to war in Salon, 
good Theo, who'd been by his son's side in the military since the boy was eight years old, let him go on his own? And what of Anne's attitude of to being left behind while her husband fought overseas? And of Theo leaving his other children with the youngest less than four years old? Nicole, it's one more of these unanswered questions. We'll never know the real reason for his decision they made. But in the end, they made the fateful decision to go to Salon. It'll prove to be a life-changing and critical decision. By December 1817, Theo and Joseph had left Van Diemen's Land and went back to Sydney where they stayed until June 1818. It appears that they were then in transit as there was some discussion between the military and the East India Company as to who would pay their salaries from June until when they arrived in Ceylon, which is modern day Sri Lanka, to rejoin the 73rd Regiment in August 1818. Once in Ceylon, Theo and Joseph spent time in Trincomalee and like many around them, Theo became ill and was hospitalised for most of September, but recovered. Theo and Joseph fought the Candian rebels in the mountain regions of Candy and Badula. The air was swampy, the mountain regions were jungles, and the English were completely unsuited to the environment. But Theo's good luck in surviving guerrilla warfare in the mountains and recovering from illness was about to run out. In November, three months after their arrival, Theo's precious son, Joseph, died, not from combat, but from a tropical fever or potentially cholera. A devastated Theo likely buried Joseph at the burial ground on the Esplanade in Trincomalee. Shortly thereafter, Theo spent time in Gaul and was hospitalised again. And in the two year period he served in Ceylon, he was hospitalised five times for a total of 158 days, likely with the unrecognised disease of malaria. According to the book called Some of the More Important Diseases of the Army with Contributions to Pathology, written by Davy and published in 1862, opium was typically prescribed to treat tropical fever, along with calomel, which is mercury chloride. With Theo's extended hospitalisation, it was highly likely that he and many other soldiers developed an opium addiction. Just after Joseph's death, so by the end of 1818, the Third Candian War was over. The British suffered an horrific death toll during this war. According to the book Highland Furies, written by Schofield in 1818 alone, of the 356 casualties, including Joseph Futrell, only 21 men died in combat or from wounds from battle. The rest were victims of tropical disease. So you can imagine Theo's condition now. He would have been consumed with grief over losing his son. He would have been weak from constant illness and he'd been managing opium addiction, not to mention dealing with the challenging surroundings. Just over 18 months after Joseph's death on 14 July 1820, the decision as to whether Theo would stay in the military was taken from him. At age 48 in Ceylon, Theo was discharged out to pension as worn out and unfit for duty. Five months later in December 1820, he arrived back in Gravesend in England, having gone full circle to where he left England 30 years earlier. And it's worth a quick word on opium addiction. At the time, for those who had money, opium or laudanum was freely available to buy from chemists or druggists, I think they were known as at the time. The military had provided Theo with accommodation and a pension in Hampton, Staffordshire, just west of Birmingham, but it's unclear if he ever reached there. By May 1821, four months after he arrived in England, Theo had made his way to Hartlebury, 
a parish southwest of Birmingham. And just to put that location in perspective, it's 283 kilometres north of Gravesend, 32 kilometres south of his hometown in Bilston, and 22 kilometres south of Hampton. So he's sort of in the area near to his hometown and his military accommodation. In his pocket, there was a comb and a pension certificate, but no money. No money for food, shelter, or to support his opium addiction. He was seen wandering around Worsley Green, rambling to himself before he was found after some days in a cow shed, no longer alive. Theo was 49. A coroner's inquest found he took his own life, quote, being insane, unquote. Theo was buried under a coroner's warrant on the 9th of May, 1821, at St. James Anglican Church, Hartlebury. It's a sad ending after everything he'd endured and achieved. And Nicole, we're left with the unanswered question as to why he didn't return to Van Diemen's Land to Anne and his family. And I've attempted to answer that in my book more than I ever had, but we can never know for sure. Here was a man who virtually started off life as an orphan, traveled to the other side of the world as a member of the military, survived long episodes of famine, found love and suffered loss and created a family. And along the way, contributed to the foundation of Sydney, Parramatta and Launceston. Theophilus Futrell's descendants still live in Tasmania and Sydney, as well as other states of Australia and in other countries. I wonder what he'd make of it all. But what happened to his wife, Anne, and their children after Theo and Joseph left? Well, I just want to go back to the story I mentioned about the bush ranger Michael Howe and that the authorities displayed his head in Hobart Town. The whole purpose of this gruesome display was an effort to discourage anyone else from continuing the murder, terror, and mayhem he and his gang wrought on the community. In 1818, the government considered Michael Howe as being the last and worst of the bushrangers. At the time, they could not conceive that a more evil bushranger could exist, but he did. And after Joseph and Theo left for Salon, the future family encountered this man with tragic consequences. But that's for the next episode. Wow, Ray, what an amazing story. You really brought Theo to life. I really appreciate your time. I'm amazed by the amount of research you've done and the story that you've told. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, you're welcome, Nicole. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And don't forget you can have early access to episodes by subscribing and you'll also gain access to bonus episodes. This two-part episode on Theo will feature a bonus episode covering the next generation, so Theo's children. If you are interested in sharing your story on my podcast, Family History Mysteries, please go to my Facebook page and send me a message. If you would like some assistance in filling in the gaps in your family tree to see what mysteries you solve, please get in touch.